Well, let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words we've just heard. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus says, Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Father, we believe you have spoken to us in your word. Please help us use our ears to listen well to what you have said. For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder if you've ever had a single day that has dominated your thinking weeks or months in advance of the day's arrival. For the actors among us, perhaps that was the date when a play was due to open, a play in which you had a particularly satisfying role. For the mothers among us, I'm sure your due date influenced your thinking months in advance of that day. Those of us who are married will, I'm sure, be able to remember what it was like to live with all kinds of preparations being made for one day in the future, the wedding day. Perhaps if you're not a native New Yorker, the date of your move to New York City was one that loomed large in your thinking long ahead of time. If you're a runner, you'll be able to relate to all this because I've noticed runners think a lot and sometimes talk a lot about upcoming race dates, the date of a future marathon that they are training for. One date on the calendar that had a big impact on my own life in advance was March the 12th, 2017. That was the launch date for Good Shepherd Anglican Church, the date of our first service. For months beforehand, Betsy and I were preparing for that one day, that launch date, getting things done with that single day in view. Well, I hope you have been able to think of a time when one circled date on the calendar influenced your behavior long in advance, because according to today's Bible passage, that's the frame of mind God wants all of us to have in relation to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the main topic in today's Bible passage. It's the future day when God will judge the world. Both those two middle paragraphs, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, and then the first few verses of chapter 4, both those paragraphs focus on the day itself. But the passage starts and ends with different time periods in view. To begin with, Malachi addresses things happening in his own day. And then in the final verses of the passage, Malachi speaks about the in-between time as God's people wait for the day of the Lord to come. For the rest of the sermon, we'll look at each of those three time periods in turn, starting with Malachi's day, chapter 3, verses 13 through 16, through 15, sorry. Malachi's day. No, I do mean 16, 13 through 16. Malachi's day. God has been eavesdropping. He's been listening to what the people have been saying about him. And what he's heard hasn't been pleasant or complimentary. As God says to the people in verse 13, 
your words have been hard against me. The people then act innocent. They say, how have we spoken against you? But God has a very good memory and he quotes back their own words to them. Let's look down, please, to verses 14 and 15. This is what they've been saying about God. It is vain to serve God. What's the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. If you've heard some of the other sermons in this series, that complaint against God will sound familiar. Throughout the book of Malachi, the people have been making the same mistake. They've made up their minds about God on the basis of their current circumstances. Those circumstances weren't good. Malachi prophesied at a time when Israel was ruled by the Persians. A large portion of Israel's harvests went as a kind of tax to the kings of Persia, which must have been exasperating for the Israelites. In the book of Nehemiah, written around the same time, the people described themselves as slaves. That's how the Israelites thought of themselves during this time in their history. That's why they say in verse 14, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge? The people have reached the conclusion that their God can't improve their situation. They know they're supposed to keep his charge, which means obediently doing what he commands. And they know God wants them to walk as if in mourning before him. Mourning in the Bible is often connected to sin. And Israel's weak position in the world at that time was caused by Israel's sin. So the proper response to their situation at that time was to mourn before God. The people know what they're supposed to do, but they just don't think doing those things will improve their lot. They don't think living for God will be worthwhile for them. In verse 15, the people say, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. From the people's point of view, their God is just too weak to deal with evildoers properly. His arm is too short to stop evildoers escaping. That's why in verse 15, the people call the arrogant blessed. They're probably speaking about those Persian overlords who would have seemed very arrogant to the Israelites. The people call them blessed because they're the ones with the power and the riches the good clothes, the well-fed children, and the solid houses. Those arrogant Persians are the blessed ones in the eyes of the much poorer Israelites. The people's words about God in those verses 14 and 15 are blasphemous and shocking. There's a fatal flaw in their thinking. They are assuming that since their current circumstances are difficult and disappointing, their God, the God of Israel, must be weak. They're assuming God's not answering their prayers because he can't answer their prayers. But God, in the Bible, never promises his people that everything will go well for them in this life. God never promises his people that 
our circumstances in this current world will always be just as we want them to be. Sometimes God uses suffering to benefit his people, to transform us into the people he wants us to be. One example of that is the writer of Psalm 119 who says to God, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. The people speaking in verses 14 and 15 haven't considered that God might have that kind of purpose for their suffering. But the people quoted in verses 14 and 15 aren't the only voices in Israel at that time. In verse 16, there's a very encouraging group of Israelites who see things differently. Please look down with me to verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. These people aren't put off by their current circumstances. They still fear the Lord, even though their situation isn't what they might wish it to be. Fearing God is often misunderstood. It simply means taking God seriously. That's the short explanation. The slightly longer explanation is that fearing God means taking God seriously by obeying his commands. From the Bible's point of view, anyone who claims to fear God but doesn't keep his commands doesn't truly fear God. And from the Bible's point of view, saved people, people trusting in God alone to rescue them from sin and death, those people will fear him by obeying his commands. It's what saved people do. Biblically speaking, it's just impossible to be saved and live a life of totally unrepentant rebellion against God. God helps his saved people live life his way. So these Israelites in verse 16 are patiently fearing God by obeying him despite the trials they face at that particular time in history. And according to verse 16, these God-fearers are included in God's book of remembrance. His book of remembrance. Humans of New York is an Instagram account with 12.1 million followers, which is a lot. The account tells stories about regular New Yorkers, one person at a time. One day, my friend Josh Kinlaw was stopped in the street by the guy who runs the account. Josh's photograph was taken, his story was written down, and then there he was on Humans of New York. Josh was the featured New Yorker on that famous Instagram account. I knew Josh through the church I worked for at the time. And as you can imagine, everyone at that church was buzzing because Josh was on Humans of New York. Millions of people were reading his story. Tens of thousands were liking his story. But I'm sure if Josh were here, he'd say the excitement quickly ran out. I'm sure he'd say that being included on Humans of New York didn't have any lasting impact on his life. Yes, his name and face were among those stories, but ultimately, what does that count for? Ultimately, every collection of names and stories here on earth will fade in importance and become insignificant. 
how different it is with God's book of remembrance. Listen again to verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. To be included in that book has eternal consequences. That, is the, that book is the book of life spoken of in the New Testament. Everyone included in that book will be on the right side of God's judgment on the day of the Lord. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, the day of the Lord. That's the second of the three time periods in this Bible passage, the day of the Lord. You can see that particular name for the day towards the end of the passage in chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The same expression, the day of the Lord, is found in seven of the other Old Testament prophecy books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Zephaniah. They don't all have precisely the same day in view. But every reference to the day of the Lord in those books of prophecy has one thing in common, God's justice. The day of the Lord is always a day when God steps in to make his justice known. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord refers to just one future day, the day when Jesus will return to judge the world. In this passage from Malachi, the day of the Lord is the same day that the New Testament writers have in view, that final day of the Lord, the day when God's justice is complete. It's the day when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be like stubble in the field, according to chapter 4, verse 1. That day is on God's calendar. We don't know which date has been circled, but a date is circled on God's calendar. The day of the Lord. The day is coming, God says in Malachi 4, verse 1. The day is coming. And because it's coming, there is nothing more important in this life than being ready for it, or in the language of this passage, having your name included in God's book of remembrance. Look at how verse 16 runs into verse 17. They shall be mine, God says at the start of verse 17, in the day when I make up my treasure possession and I will spare them. Who are these people spared on that future day? These people treated as God's treasured possession. They're the ones from verse 16 who were included in God's book of remembrance. They're the ones who kept fearing God even though Israel's hard circumstances made it difficult to believe God was really in control. They're the ones who didn't give in to the temptation to become cynical about God. In the words of verse 16, they're the ones who esteemed God's name. They thought highly, in their hearts, they thought highly of God's name. We find out more about this group of people in verse 18, which says, Then you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God 
and the one who does not serve him. It's God who graciously grants righteousness as a free gift. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, But righteous people serve God. It's God who grants righteousness as a free gift. But righteous people serve God. Paul also teaches in Philippians 2 that those who are saved work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Salvation has this world consequences. Those who are saved serve their saviour. Righteous people, we're told there in verse 18, serve God. We've seen from verse 18 that on the day of the Lord, the righteous and the wicked will be identified. A distinction will be made between those two groups. At the start of chapter 4, God illustrates that distinction with a series of pictures. They are pictures. They're not literal predictions. But each picture does fit with reality in the sense that it communicates something of the experience of that coming day. To begin with, God speaks about the wicked. Verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God returns to that picture of destruction in verse 3, where he describes the wicked as ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. Now, earlier in the passage, the people had, the people had uh, criticized God for blessing the arrogant and letting evildoers escape, if you remember. But here in chapter 4, verse 1, God uses those very same words, the arrogant, the evildoers, and he makes it clear they will not escape his justice. There they are, chapter 4, verse 1. How different it is for the righteous. Look down with me, please, to chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. In the Bible, when God arrives to help his people, more than once, that's compared to light dawning in a land of deep darkness. Light dawning at last. And that's the idea in verse 2. For the Israelites in Malachi's day, there was darkness and gloom. But God promises those who fear him that dawn will come for them. The joy of the righteous on that day will be so great that Malachi says they'll be like calves from the stall, which is not a sight we often see on the streets of New York City. Young cows released from their stalls in springtime. But YouTube can help us. YouTube is our friend here. If you search on YouTube for happy cows skipping out to grass for the first time, you should find a video with that title posted by someone who calls himself the Funky Farmer. And you'll see cows running and leaping in excitement as they're released into the field in springtime. 
it's like the cow equivalent of those moments in life when you get some wonderfully good news and no one is watching, the blinds are safely down and you jump on the couch, pump your arms in the air and dance a jig. We've all done that once or twice, haven't we? Or is it just me? Well, cows do that when they are released from the stall. And that is what God's righteous ones will do on the day of the Lord. Do you see how God is straining to get your attention through these pictures, these images? If that comparison means nothing to you, ashes trampled underfoot versus leaping for joy, if that means nothing to you, then from God's perspective, there is something wrong with you, something wrong with your ears, something wrong with your mind and heart. God doesn't use pictures like those lightly or carelessly. They fit with reality. They truly communicate something of the experience of that day that is coming. If as you listen to those pictures, your response is no different to your response when you hear the daily weather report, then let me say again with no hesitation, there is something wrong with you. God does not speak aimlessly when he speaks about ashes underfoot versus leaping for joy. That is a warning from the Creator, from heaven. If you haven't yet come to God for his forgiveness, please don't postpone that any longer. Today is the day. And if you've already taken hold of the salvation God offers through his Son Jesus, well, please don't drift from Jesus and his word. Let's press on to the final time period in the passage before the day of the Lord, verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 4. This is the third of the three time periods in the passage before the day of the Lord. It's an in-between time period, an in-the-meantime time period. We saw earlier that in Malachi's day, God identified a group of Israelites who feared him. They were included in his book of remembrance. When the day of the Lord comes, they'll belong to his treasured possession. They'll experience the joy we've just been thinking about, pictured in verse 2. But in the meantime, there is an in-between period, a time of waiting. That's what God speaks about in the final few verses of the passage of the book. The main task for this God-fearing group is to keep at it. They're to keep pressing on. They're to keep on keeping on. To fear God is to take him seriously by obeying his commands, and that's what these Israelites will need to carry on doing throughout the whole of their lives. God says in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai, the mountain where God gave the law to Moses some 800 years before Malachi's time. The law of Moses was still valid in Malachi's time, still God's will for his people. And so their task is to fear God by keeping those ancient laws while they wait for the day of the Lord. But there is something that will happen before the day of the Lord comes. 
Something's going to happen that the people should watch out for. God says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says of John the Baptist, He is the Elijah who was to come. John's ministry achieved what we see prophesied in the last verse of the passage. John called on the people to repent, to live life God's way, and they did. And what happens when people live life God's way? One of the outcomes is harmony between the generations. Verse 6, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Fathers getting along better with their children. Children getting along better with their fathers. John's influence, John the Baptist's influence on the people of Israel achieved that. His influence was so great that it was recorded not only in the pages of the New Testament, which is where we often encounter it, but also in the writings of Josephus, a first century Jewish historian born just after the time of John the Baptist and Jesus. Here's what Josephus says about John the Baptist, this Elijah prophesied by Malachi. Josephus says, This good man commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. Many people came in crowds to hear him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Now, most scholars think the book of Malachi was written sometime around 450 BC. John the Baptist began his ministry in the year 29 AD. So God's people had to wait nearly 500 years for the Elijah prophesied by Malachi to come. That is a long wait. Throughout those five centuries, God expected his people to do as he says in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. The Israelite situation during those five centuries has much in common with our own situation here in New York City in 2022. They were in an in-between period, looking back to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and looking forward to the arrival of God's messenger, the Elijah promised by Malachi. We are also in an in-between period, an in-the-meantime time period. We look back to the first coming of Jesus and we look forward to his second coming, the day of his return, the day of the Lord. And in this in-between period, our task is very similar to the task in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. At the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, just before ascending into heaven, he told his disciples, this is from Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. We're Jesus' disciples, and our task is to obey by the power of Jesus' Spirit everything he has commanded. Jesus' commands aren't identical to the law of Moses because Jesus fulfilled that law, but Jesus' commands do draw from that ancient 
law. All ten of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. They're still living and active. And so like the God-fearers in Malachi's day, we're to wait by obeying God. That's how we wait. It's how we fill the time. We don't earn God's favour by obeying Jesus' commands because God has already poured out his love upon us. He gave us the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus died to take God's punishment in the place of those who trust in him and he rose from the dead to give new life to those who trust in him. The price for eternal life has been paid. There's no more earning that needs to be done. But there is waiting that needs to be done. And we wait by obeying. Save, saving faith in Jesus overflows into obedience. And, and obedience is good for us. God gives us commands because he loves us. Just like loving parents say to their children, no, you can't do that. Yes, you can do that. If you're conscious of repeat disobedience in your life, can I say that is not something to shrug your shoulders about. It is something to address. Go to God, your loving Father, and pray for his help. Ask him for progress. Maybe find a trustworthy Christian friend who you can talk to and pray with about this problem area in your life. We're not alone in the Christian life. We have brothers and sisters we can talk to and pray with. And more importantly, we have God's Spirit dwelling within us. By his power, sin can be overcome. The day is coming. God wants us to keep our eyes on that future day, the day of the Lord, and live with that day in view. It's a date circled on God's calendar that should influence the way we live now. Whenever Betsy and I are watching a TV show and there are two people in the front of a car having a conversation while one of them drives, we both get very anxious if the driver spends too long looking at the passenger instead of looking at the road ahead. We know it's just a TV show, but more than likely, either Betsy or I will shout at the TV screen, look at the road! Keep your eyes on the... No, don't look at your passenger! Look at the road! And it must be somewhat like that with God and human beings. When he sees us living life without any reference to the day of the Lord that is coming, well, judging by today's passage, he must say to himself, don't take your eyes off the day. Keep looking at the day. Keep looking at the day of the Lord. Those who want to be on the right side of God's judgment in the future will fear their Saviour God in the here and now. And fixing our eyes on the day of the Lord will keep that fear of God that healthy fear of God, fresh and real in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us freely, the gift of righteousness 
through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has given us his Spirit to empower us for obedience. Thank you for giving us commands that tell us, teach us how to live so that we know how to live well. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to live as those who fear you by obeying the commands Jesus has given us. In his name we pray. Amen.